0: This week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. Well, it's almost Mueller time. Mueller is, Robert Mueller is finally going to testify this week, coming up on Wednesday. And everyone's waiting with bated breath, but uh, I don't know. I don't know what to expect, but I'm going to talk about a little bit of a preview of the Mueller hearing's coming up. And I have David Swordlick, who is an assistant editor at the Washington Post and also a fellow CNN contributor. He's going to be on with me to talk about a few things, including a bit of his thoughts on Mueller and uh, also talking about this ongoing feud with Trump and the squad. It's still going on, folks. A week plus later, it's still going on with no signs of slowing down the president has continued to tweet. There's been all kinds of things in the last week that have just escalated this really ugly situation. I, I just, I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. This is so exhausting. Are the American people exhausted of this yet? I don't know. I don't know. But it it's, it's becoming just really depressing. <laughs> it is. I mean, every once in a while, you just kind of throw up your hands and you go, are we really here? Is this really happening? And that's how I felt most of last week as this this squad squabble has continued. It's been nuts. It was bad enough that the president sent out a tweet, not this Sunday, the week before, telling these four freshman congressmen to go back to where they came from, to the crime-infested places they came from, that was bad enough. And uh, if you follow me on Twitter, then you probably saw I posted um, also on Instagram my very impassioned thoughts about this on CNN when it first happened. And I just, I was just so beside myself with, with the president's attitude. How dare he tell them to go back? Like, I, come on that's just such a racist trope. Everybody knows it. And anyone trying to say that it's not, they're just deluding themselves. They're bullshitting people, trying to gaslight them into thinking that there was no racial motive behind what he said. Please spare me, okay? Cuz he said it plenty of times. And anyone who's a person of color has knows that that's a typical go back to where you come from is a typical racist um insult for people. So, like spare me that. And then Wednesday came along and the president had one of those freaking rallies, and this one was in North Carolina, and here comes the chant send her back. That was outrageous. Now, listen, don't get me wrong. I don't agree with anything Representative Ilhan Omar says. As a matter of fact, I find a lot of what she says. Troubling. I find her background troubling. I find questions about whether she committed immigration fraud with the marriage to her brother, which was uh, sounded crazy when the president brought it up. But it's really not all that crazy. It's it was reported in, in the um, the Tribune in Minnesota, where she's from. There have been questions about this. She's been uh, not forthright about about that. There's been legitimate investigation into this and it's unclear what happened there. So, but still, I mean, the president had, doesn't really need to be getting into the mud over things like that, but that's what he does. Uh, she's said in some anti-Semitic things and, um, I felt that she was also flippant about her comments concerning nine 11. And some people did some things and I, you know, I, I don't, I don't care for her. I find her objectionable. However, she is a an American citizen who was duly elected to Congress and the president of the United States has no business encouraging people to have an attitude that if you disagree, or if you have a different worldview from other people in this country that you don't deserve to be here. Who the hell is he to determine who's, who can be an American who's patriotic? I I just, I can't say that enough. It's, it's a, It's just such a dangerous attitude to have, and it further divides us in really, really dangerous ways. It it just does. And David Swardlick and I have a really uh, robust conversation about this because both both of us are biracial, so we bring an interesting interesting perspective to this, Um, and I I just think it's a it's a valuable one, Um, but it didn't stop there. You know, he, he sat back and I, I'm sure by now you've seen it over and over and over again, how he stood there for 13 full seconds and allowed the crowd to chant sender back. Now he didn't chant it, but he stood there and he basked in it and he let him get away with it. Just like the locker up stuff. And then there, then the reactions came in the visceral reactions very swift condemnation from a lot of people. Basically, a lot of Republicans went, holy shit, this has gone too far. They tried to clean up the tweets earlier in the week and then this just blew it all up. So, but first thing Thursday morning, so on Capitol Hill, usually on Thursdays before they leave for the week, they have a, um, the Senate has a, a, a meeting in the morning and sometimes they have, like what they call, they call them caucus meetings, the house and the Senate does this and they'll usually do one in the beginning of the week and at the end of the week, kind of like, what's what's going on? And then, you know, what's next? And Vice President Pence was at his meeting on Thursday with elected members and Republicans early on Thursday were like, WTF, we got to get in front of this. We need to stop this now. We, we need to condemn that. The sender back chant is a bridge too far. And clearly, Pence and everybody recognized that this was a problem. Well, Ivanka reportedly said something to Trump to her father. And by the afternoon he was doing one of those press avails in his oval office where he had people surrounding him. I think it was special Olympics, um, participants. And he was asked about this. And then all of a sudden it was, Oh, I wasn't, I didn't care for it. I didn't care for that. I didn't care for the chant. I didn't do it, but those are good people. And, and he was asked, well, are you going to tell them not to do it again? And what did he say? He didn't ever, he never did that. He just said that he wasn't happy with it. And, and, uh, those were good people basically. Okay. Does anyone really believe that? Oh, he said that he's, he, he tried to stop it, that he spoke quickly to, to stop it. That's bullshit. He didn't start speaking quickly to stop anything. He was loving it. I mean, it's like, don't believe your lying eyes and ears. I, it, the video evidence is clear yet. He said, well, it was clear that I no. I, it's just amazing to me how many people buy this this stuff. He says it, knowing there's audio and video of it, but to refute to, to completely refute it, it's it's uh, mind-boggling. Well, that was the line. So now he blew up the his alleged walking back of it because the next day on Friday, before he left to go to his golf course in New Jersey for the God knows two hundred and something time now. He said, I guess he caught shit from the grassroots or Fox News, the echo chamber at Fox News wasn't happy with him now walking back. And now he turned again. Oh, well, they're patriots calling these people who were chanting, send her back to a, an elected member of Congress, woman of color that they disagree with for her to go back to where she came from, that they're patriots. Well, I was on CNN. I was on the lead with Jake Tapper and I just went off on this you know, patriots, those freaking people aren't patriots. Okay. They're tribal nativists that are demagoguing an issue. And that is send her back, love it or leave it, which was the, the other phrase that people were throwing around, including the president. Let me tell you something. The love it or leave it meme was something that the KKK used on billboards in the South. Yes, it exists. There's pictures of it. Google it if you don't believe me. Google KKK, love it or leave it. Were those people patriots? According to Donald Trump's definition, apparently they were. What about the, the SS and the Nazis in Germany who thought that, you know, killing Jews en masse to preserve their white nationalism was patriotic? Are they patriots? I mean, where does the line, where do you draw the line? So this warped sense of what constitutes patriotism is dangerous. And Donald Trump knows exactly what he's doing with this. Even though it is against what everyone's advising him and elected officials want him to cut this shit out, they know that he knows that the racial resentment is a strong motivating factor, unfortunately. But at what cost? What cost, man? Like, I'm telling you, this strategy is so dangerous. I just... I don't know. I don't know what it's going to take. I mean, we already saw tiki torches in in Charlottesville and a woman lost her life. It's, um, how far is this going to go? It's just so irresponsible. And he is a demagogue. He's a dangerous demagogue and he's exploiting these racial resentments and weaponizing them politically in ways that I just, I just don't know how it ends And I have to say that over the weekend, you know, a lot of people have written a lot of things and and had commentary about this, about how that meme of go back to where you came from. It didn't only apply to people of color, it applied to Italians and Irish and other immigrants who came into this country. That was something that was a common um, insult. So it hit home for more people than just people of color. But yet the Republicans, and the Republicans know this, but they, and which is why they didn't want to take it head on. So instead of calling Trump and what he's done racist, which it is, I'm sorry, I don't throw that term around lightly, but in this case, it's freaking textbook racism. They've tried to change it around to make it about the squad's ideology. And... Initially, if they had just stuck to that, just stuck to the policy differences in their ideology, then I wouldn't have had a problem with it. But it's not just there. And they can't ignore that it is not just there. Trump took it to the race level and to the xenophobic level. But they are insisting that that's not what he meant. Well, no, stop telling us what he meant. We heard what the hell he said and how he said and he said these things before. We see how he's acted whether it's calling NFL players sons of bitches and telling them they can leave the country, which he said, to um, uh, Judge Curial, because he's uh, of Mexican heritage, he can't be a fair, impartial judge. He's from Indiana, by the way. I mean, the list is long. It's lengthy. And you saw some of of Trump's acolytes and his minions going on the Sunday shows over the weekend, including that freaking mini brown shirt wannabe, Stephen Miller. That guy should never be let out of the closet. Okay. He should, they should lock him in the basement because he is the worst possible spokesperson for this administration. I mean, he's angry. He is insulting. He's condescending as hell. And, um, he, he's just, he's awful. And Chris Wallace, good kudos to him. Good for him. Challenged Stephen Miller on the statements he was making trying to defend Trump and trying to claim Trump said something different than what he did or said. And Chris Wallace held him to account. But somebody else, Liz Cheney, daughter of Dick Cheney, and I'm sure he's not uh, beloved by most of those of you that are listening to me. And uh, I mean, I didn't hate Dick Cheney as much as some of the others and you know, the whole Darth Vader thing and all that. Um, I have a different perspective. But, um, but Liz Cheney, who is now a uh, congresswoman from Wyoming, she is the number three in the house. She's in leadership. She is the conference chair. And the conference chair is responsible for the messaging. They're the messaging arm of the caucus. So her job is to you know help craft the message and keep everybody on on a consistent uh, messaging for whatever it is, whether it's legislation or like this and crisis management. So if the Republicans have been picking women in this role for the last couple of years because they know they have a women problem, so they want to make sure they put elevate a woman to some kind of leadership. Yet, there's never been a woman that's either been majority leader or a whip or Speaker of the House. They can only seem to get past, get to the conference chair. Number three, I guess, whatever. Let me tell you how obnoxious Liz Cheney was on Face the Nation. She was rude. She was like... Pulling a mini Kellyanne, that kind of tactic where she would talk over Margaret Brennan, who's the host of Face the Nation on Sundays. And she's a tough interviewer, by the way. I, I actually like her. Um, but she wouldn't let her finish the question. And when Margaret was challenging her on facts about what Trump actually said and tweeted, she would just talk over her, then then turn around and say, well, you're not giving me a chance to answer the question. Oh, you're not giving her a chance to get it out because you don't want it. You don't want people to hear the facts of what Trump said, because it just makes you look stupid trying to defend it or turn it around. It was so infuriating to watch. Oh my God. Well, you guys don't want to talk about anything else but race and this, and you don't want to talk about the economy or policies. And Margaret was like, we'd love to, except the president of the United States isn't talking about those things. He's the one that's tweeting out crazy shit, basically, (laughs) you know? And she's like, we're reporting on what the president is saying. Yeah, we'd love to talk about those things, but that's not what the president is saying. So maybe you need to take it up with him. Yeah, it was, it's just frustrating. But it's important for people to be informed and to know what they see in front of them and what they're, you know, what's being reported. Trump went after the the Washington Post again because they kind of did a TikTok on how the whole send them back stuff unfolded last week. And anytime he does that, um, it's usually that means that the story was accurate because he freaks out and goes on these Twitter temper tantrums about stuff. So, anytime you see Josh Dossie or the Washington Post on a byline, or Maggie Haberman for the New York Times, you can pretty much, and there's a few others that are excellent White House reporters. You can pretty much count on the fact that it's accurate. They um, they have great sourcing. So, so the president's all upset about being outed on this and, and it's, and he's still going. He went after the, the, them again, the, the, the squad calling them not too smart and racist and bad for the country and all this again. Now, here we are eight days and counting with this BS. Oh, but let me say on the flip side of this too. Like I said, I'm no fan of the squad or what they stand for, but I will defend them as elected members of Congress against these attacks that I think are irresponsible and dangerous, Um, but they're not helping themselves. Nancy Pelosi is really trying to do the best that she can to keep this democratic caucus together. Their singular focus should be defeating Donald Trump in 2020. Instead, she now has to, because Trump is smartly trying to make them the face of the democratic party. That's smart politics, not the race part, but the calling them socialist and, and saying that they're going to destroy the country from, with their policies, all that. I mean, a little hyperbolic, but but smart to get people ginned up and making them. There are only four out of you know 300 Democrats between the House and the Senate. But they're the face of it now and they're getting all the attention. And Nancy Pelosi, you know, she's like, oh, if you guys can you guys just like shut the hell up for a little bit and let this blow over and let me handle this. Because it's, it's giving, it's, it's hurting the Democrats overall. The more that these four are in the news, I mean, yes, they look like victims to a little, a little bit, but in the places that Democrats need to win, they are a lightning rod. It's not going to help them. And Nancy Pelosi knows this. When Rashida Tlaib goes in front of the NAACP convention, like she did, and says that I'm not going anywhere until I impeach Donald Trump, that's not helpful, I know it looks like they're fighting back and they need to defend their honor, but that kind of stuff, that's their hitting back. It just it just gives credence to what Trump is saying, and it's not a good look. That's just my opinion. Just my opinion. And interestingly, over the weekend, um, this uh, Democrat consultant, his name is Tim Wise, he, he put out a thread, this really, really comprehensive thread on Twitter. I suggest you guys go and take a look at it where he talks about as a consultant, he worked on the campaign in Louisiana against David Duke when he ran for Senate and governor back in 1991, 92. And that was the last time that the Republicans were really faced with a flat out unapologetic racist that was running. And the party, including President Bush, George H.W. Bush at the time, Bush 41, they were swift in their condemnation and said there was no room in the party for anyone like that And he was basically shunned without unequivocally. There was none of this mealy mouthed tiptoeing around shit like there is going on today concerning Trump. And Tim Wise talks about the strategy that they had, what worked and what didn't. And he said that in a case like this, where you have someone who basically is an existential threat to the proper order of things, that... Arguing over policies, prescriptions, and specifics, and this and that isn't going to work because people don't care. They don't care about that stuff. More, They don't care about that as much as they care about how this person makes them feel. And when people are, and he's saying that that applies to today, what's going on with Trump. You're not going to beat Trump by out ch- trying to out-policy paper him. He won without any real policy prescriptions or specifics. So... The way to beat him is to show people that it's not worth it. Is it worth it? This style of governing the division, the ripping away of our fabric, the division, all that. Is that worth it? Is that is that making the country better off? Are you better off? Yeah, your 401k may be doing well, but at what cost? And they have to paint that picture and hammer that home. And I thought that was interesting, I agree with him. We can't let Trump get away with this because he's fundamentally changing the way our entire system, is is uh, our, our republic is functioning. It's not functioning properly. And people, as Americans, the way our system is set up, we are ultimately responsible for the government we get. Um, I just found it very interesting and I'm like, yeah, that's what we need to do. We've gotta hammer that home in a way that's relatable. So people can realize that this is exhausting. Can we really go another four years of this? Who knows what the hell this looks like at the end of it? So that's the challenge to our 2020 candidates out there. You know, I I support Joe Biden. I still think that he is the only person that can relate to those people and those states that Democrats need to get Trump the hell out of there. But we got to see how he performs in the debate coming up. Um, I kind of feel like their responses to everything that's been going on thus far has been a bit, meh, but I don't know. We' we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens with that. Um, a couple of other just quick side notes before um, little side tidbits of information before I bring in David Swardlick. Um, <laughs> so the whole immigration thing and building the wall, right? One of the staples of Donald Trump's 2016 campaign. We're going to build the wall. Mexico's going to pay for it. Well, none of that has happened. And there's been reports for months about how there's been not one foot of new fencing built along the Mexican border. Not one ounce, not one foot, not an inch. Everything that's been built has been replacement fencing. So it replaced existing old dilapidated fencing. Um, Dilapidated fencing, yeah. So... <laughs> Finally, the Washington Examiner, one of its kind of right of center paper, um, published an article reiterating this. And I was like, no shit. We've been people have been reporting this for months and months, despite Trump trying to convince his base that, oh, we've been building miles and miles of fencing. Not quite, buddy. There's been funding for new fencing, but they haven't gotten to it because the priority was built was uh, fixing and rebuilding the existing fencing. So these idiots that are out there build the wall, like, yeah, it's not getting built people. Okay. It's another one of those things that Trump has duped you on. They claim the the, the DHS claims they are going to get 400 plus miles of new fencing built. Okay. We'll see. By the time 2020 comes around, bullshit. There's no way. They can't even get the permitting for it that fast, trust me. I was there working in Congress in 2007 when they passed the Secure Fence Act, which was 700 miles of fencing. It took them 10 years to get that. So please. I just think that's funny. It's just another one of the cons that Trump has pulled on these people. Uh, Other interesting news, he's very upset with Dan Coates, apparently. Who is Dan Coates? He's a former senator. He's currently the Director of National Intelligence. The DNI is responsible for overseeing all of the intelligence agencies. I've always been kind of a skeptic about that position. It was created after 9-11 and it just felt redundant to me, but it it is a a position nonetheless. And uh, you never really hear much about what Dan Coates is doing because he's basically been neutered and... Uh, Trump now, and Dan Coats doesn't exactly agree with everything Trump has been doing. So I think he hasn't been as outspoken because he's trying to hold on to his job to keep things sane over there. But he said a couple things in, during congressional testimony under oath that Trump wasn't happy with because it contradicted Trump's view of things. And so now he's looking to get rid of him. And guess who has been meeting with Trump? Devin Nunes. Yes, that Devin Nunes, the former chairman of the Intelligence Committee, who was up the ass of the president the whole time he was chairman during the Mueller investigation and uh, running over there, midnight runs to brief the president on stuff he wasn't supposed to. Nunes is a snake. I'm so glad he lost that chairmanship because the, the Democrats took over the House. Well, he's been meeting with the president and some speculation is he's lobbying to get that job as DNI director. God help us. God help us if that's the case. Keep an eye on that situation. A couple other quick things: um, Trump and this, <laughs> Trump was meeting with the president, uh, the prime minister of Pakistan, and he. Every time he does these press avail[s] when he has a foreign leader in town, you know they see them and sitting in the chairs and side by side, and Trump does a press avail. It, it, they're doozies every time, and this week was no exception. He stepped in it on so many issues and just really displayed his utter ignorance of foreign policy and world affairs. Uh, this guy doesn't know anything. And I, I'm sure there are a lot of people in the Pentagon and the State Department banging their heads on their desks listening to Trump during that press avail. He went on about Kashmir, which is one of the most disputed areas in the world between Pakistan and India, super sensitive, He doesn't know anything about the the geopolitics of that. Sitting there with the prime minister of Pakistan sitting next to him, Imran Khan, by the way, who is like a world famous cricket player. People probably heard me talking about cricket last week because my husband and I are cricket enthusiasts and Pakistan is like, I think cricket's the the national sport of Pakistan and their prime minister is like the Derek Jeter of Pakistan. He was, he's retired now. Anyway, just an aside. Um... He's sitting there like, what is happening? <laughs> he talked about Puerto Rico. By the way, there's massive protests going on in Puerto Rico. And that governor, Rosello, needs to get the hell out of there. He got caught, so these text messages were uncovered. He, he disparaged women and Hurricane Maria survivors and corruption and he went after Ricky Martin, made homophobic uh, comments. That guy, he's got to go. And he's saying that nah, I'm, re- I'm not gonna resign, I'm not resigning, I'm just not gonna run for reelection. But dude, you got to go. There were like 400,000 people protesting in San Juan this week. And when I don't blame them, you don't, you don't get away with behaving like that. And it's exposed and think that you're going to be able to govern anything. They need to impeach that guy. If he doesn't, if he won't go, that's what impeachment is for. That guy's the worst. Anyway, Trump talking about how he's the, no one's ever been as great to Puerto Rico as he had. I, it just nuts. And then he talks about Afghanistan how it would be so easy he could end the war in afghanistan in 10 days but he doesn't want to he doesn't want to kill 10 million people what basically implying that he, he could nuke afghanistan and that's and that's the way to end it yayayay this guy man i'm telling you i'm telling you his domestic policy's bad enough but the foreign policy stuff is just <sighs> he unilaterally has so much power to influence what happens in world affairs the world is laughing at us you've got that incident in iran iran's over here seizing oil tankers and escalating that situation and where where's the united states with our helping our allies we don't know are we a reliable ally now our allies don't know that britain france germany can they depend on us i don't know who knows Trump would rather, you know, get ha- get have happy hour drinks with uh, Putin and Kim Jong Un but then he, he he doesn't he goes after our allies. It's nuts. Well, Trump doesn't drink but it's uh I don't know. It's so frustrating. <laughs> it's so frustrating this guy. What is he doing to our country? I think that's a good note to bring in my guest for I'm um, honestly speaking this week. Assistant editor at the Washington Post and CNN contributor, my colleague David Swarwick. Uh, on this week, I'm happy to bring in my friend and colleague at CNN. David Swartlick. He's also an assistant editor at the Washington Post. And David and I share a certain bonding over our ethnicity because we're both biracial. So when we're on air, Team biracial. That's right. When Indeed. we're on air, we get to say we're one whole white person or one whole person of color, depending on what the subject matter is. <laughs> right,
1: David? That's right. That's right. Exactly. Hey, Tara, how are you?
0: I'm doing great. Just trying to survive Good. through all this, the chaos chronicles, as I repeatedly call it, what happens here in Washington every week with this president president, and uh, given your position as a journalist, especially over at that evil Washington Post, the, the president's favorite newspaper next to the New York Times, I thought you'd be a good person to talk to about some of the stuff that's been going on, especially with this ongoing battle with the squad and uh, Trump's repeated attacks on the media and everything else. Um, but I wanted to start off with uh, this this presser that he did today. It's it's uh, We record the podcast on Mondays, it airs on Tuesdays, but I'm sure this is going to be something talked about for a couple of days the prime minister of Pakistan Imran Khan is here visiting and Trump always has a doozy of a press availability whenever he has these foreign leaders come to town and today was no exception Uh, um, He brought up a bunch of different things from Puerto Rico to Kashmir, but he also brought up Afghanistan. And I know this is something that you wanted to talk about, and I think it's a good one because Afghanistan has been the longest war that the United States has been engaged in. And um, the president brought up today that he could easily end Afghanistan, but he doesn't want to kill 10 million people. (laughs) I'm gonna go ahead yeah. and let you let you tell your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I mean the the president's
1: comments are both they, they, they're they're puzzling at best in the specific context of where we are in Afghanistan now. But I think they bring out a bigger issue, and I appreciate you having me on, Tara. And I I, I am uh, you know anxious to get into this because I think we we there are so many ways to come at President Trump, and one of them is that it's easy to forget now two and a half years out or three years out since the thick of the campaign, that he didn't just promise to do this on healthcare or that on trade or you know he he was certainly consistently a race baiter in the campaign he also had a major theme which was that he was so smart the leaders that preceded him were so stupid and that so many of the big problems in the world were so easy to fix he said repeatedly these things could be fixed so so easily if they had a Stable genius <laughs> like right. him right. as president, and only and, he alone can he,
0: solve it. Right? He, right? Right? He said right. That right? Only One I, I, was, alone can do
1: this. I, I alone can fix. And so, when you look at something like what he said about Afghanistan today, it's not merely that you can't do a direct connect between what he says and what the U.S. is actually trying to accomplish, but also that. This is his problem. He wants a big headline, a ticker tape parade, a star spangled solution where he's the hero and it's like, see, uh, you know, everything was so easy. You just needed Donald J. Trump to fix it. And I'm picturing him doing that thing where people like wipe their hands like Pontius Pilate and say, "Case <laughs> closed, right? But, the, But the problem is, is that if Afghanistan was easy to fix, Barack Obama would have fixed it already. If it was easy to fix, George W. Bush would have Mm -hmm. fixed it already. Afghanistan is a situation where we got in after 9-11 and did some things right, did some things wrong, but it was a you broke it, you bought it situation where the Afghanistan government that we propped up relied on the U.S. military might for security, and the other Military uh, power in Afghanistan is the Taliban, which has its own interests, and reasonable people can disagree about what the best solution is. Some people think we weren't aggressive enough with the Taliban. Fair point. Some people think that we should have made earlier efforts to do more robust infrastructure development to say to the Afghan people that we were on their side. That's a fair point of view. Mm -hmm. But whatever the point of view is, it's not a simple thing of oh let's just go in and drop bombs declare victory plant the american flag and then go home and that's the way president trump wants it to be when you hear those statements that he makes but clearly it's not no one would choose to stay in afghanistan for i guess right as you said was is it 17 years 18 now 18, 18 years 18 no month. one would no one would choose to stay it's of political advantage to neither party to be there but the, but If we leave, I think most experts would say there would be, uh, at least in the short term, chaos, increased violence. And so the question becomes, what is the United States' responsibility? What is the right troop level, et cetera? And when Trump portrays it as, you know, I could kill a bunch of people and be done with this, or I could, you know, listen to all these, you know, uh, mealy-mouthed generals who say we have to stay but not really do anything, he's misleading the public about the complexities there.
0: And you know what? That's such a great point, David, because uh, Trump, his entire existence and the way he approaches politics is with like utter simplicity yeah. right that's what but just boiling down boiling it down to us versus them easy versus hard uh patriotic right. versus not like he does mm-hmm. that on purpose I mean if I God help me for using the term the, part of the genius of his politics is that yeah. part of it because he knows that the average American doesn't watch or cover or pay attention or know this stuff the way we do because we live it every single day the average Joe Smith out there in Iowa and Kansas and Alabama. Alabama just knows that, you know, we're going to bomb either bomb those bastards and put a boot in their ass and, and defeat them, or what the hell are we still doing there with our American soldiers losing their lives for these ungrateful people in this faraway land that, you know, helped kill 3,000 Americans in 9-11. Like, they don't understand the nuances of foreign policy, and Trump yeah. doesn't either, and he's uninterested in it because Afghanistan is the only I'm- thing.
1: Yes, as a minimum, he's not interested in it. And I think you're you're spot on when you say he has a certain genius when it comes to messaging. And I don't think you should apologize for it at all. (laughs) You and I have the experience of going on TV night after night and trying to say to people, look... President Trump is not a policy wonk, but he does know how to communicate. And I know you get pushback sometimes because I get the same pushback and people will say to you on Twitter or whatever, well, how can you say Trump is a good uh, communicator? He doesn't even use proper grammar. And I'm like, but he doesn't understand the granularity of the issue, but he does know how to boil it down in a way yep. that hits people in the gut.
0: That's right. And that is part of why we find ourselves why we, where we find ourselves. That's why he, yeah. that's how we got elected people said yeah. that he's a straight talker and you know he he's mm-hmm. not a politician and And these are examples, and we're like, yeah, but he's lying to you, and he doesn't—he's ignorant about things that are really important that the president of the United States should know about. But it doesn't matter because it's all a lot of people's reactions to politics and politicians is emotional, and they feel he's like just like one of them, um, which he's so not. (laughs) And it's uh, which is the 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 conflict in all this, the contradiction in all of it is that he's absolutely not like any of them. He actually looks down on his supporters as being idiots and he uh, you know and yet they still don't don't see it it's it's a fascinating dynamic but
1: yeah what what trump real what trump realizes is that most people are busy with helping kids with homework taking kids to soccer practice going to work folding laundry Mm -hmm. uh you know doing the other things that regular people do they're exhausted by all the nuance and he comes along and says It's so easy if you just listen to me, ABC 123, something like Afghanistan, why are we there for 18 years? Right. And and instead of saying acknowledging this is hard and I want to see a way through it, uh, people latch on to the idea, many people latch on to the idea that, oh, Finally, some guy has an easy solution. Yeah, no uh, doubt.
0: That's right. I, I mean, I worked for Congressman Dana Rohrabacher, who um, was mm-hmm. one of the few Republicans who actually has been to Afghanistan, has a relationship with those folks over there. He picked up arms and fought with the Mujahideen against the Russians after he got elected in 1988, against the advice of all of his advisors and friends before he got sworn in as a congressman. So he has mm-hmm. a really, he had a really um, unique connection to Afghanistan and, and the North. Northern Alliance and those folks over there that most people in in the Congress did not and his perspective so I have a I, I know more about Afghanistan than I thought I ever would. I know, I know right. more about Pashtuns and Tajiks and Uzbeks and the you know 4,500 different tribes there, and how diff- why it's so difficult to establish a Western-style democracy in a culture like Afghanistan. It's tribal. It's just not. There's a lot going on there, and it's not an easy solution. And um, and and Dana wanted us to get the hell out of there years ago, and just let our let, let special forces and CIA kind of pay off the, the tribal leaders. Keep the peace. We get the Taliban out and let them rule themselves. But no one wanted to listen. And here we are still now, 2019, and it's still a quagmire. And I hope that we can get out of there sooner than later. But it's not an easy, like you said, when you break it, you when you've broken it, you own it. And I, I don't know what the solution is, but neither does Donald Trump. Okay. And <laughs> right. <laughs> so we're going to leave it at that. But it's a good transition over to something else that Trump uses to some of his sure. tribals, talking about tribalism. This ongoing feud with the squad, David, we're a week plus now with this. disaster, yeah. And it's not getting any better. He this morning tweeted again. He cannot help himself. You he will not let this die down, much to the chagrin of most Republican leaders and everybody else other than maybe his uh, basic instinct tribalism people, but he he tweeted this morning, the squad is a very racist group of troublemakers who are young, inexperienced, and not very smart. They're pulling the once great Democrat party far left and were against humanitarian aid at the border and are now against ICE and homeland security so bad for our country.
1: Yeah, and I think that is him him reeling it back to where we were a week plus ago and and reminding us where we were a week plus yep. ago. If you go back two Saturdays, the day before the the infamous uh go back to Africa tweets basically. <laughs> oh, go
0: back to um, crime infested countries. Yes, that exactly.
1: <laughs> if you go back two Saturdays ago, the story was the intramural fight between the four members of the squad Ocasio-Cortez, Tleb, Omar, and Presley against uh, Speaker Pelosi. And, uh, you know, the first thing, the point I was trying to make at that time when I was talking to folks on the air was, look, let's start from this point of view. Nancy Pelosi is not a racist, and the members of the squad don't think she's a racist, but the members of the squad did kind of let it get public that they thought, that they were being disrespected as freshmen women uh, women of color in her caucus, and they let a sort of an intramural fight about the border supplemental funding bill get out into the open in a way that allowed President Trump to jump in on the side of Nancy Pelosi, of all people, and sort of say, oh, how dare these young women of color call Nancy Pelosi Uh, a a racist even though they didn't call her a racist and it's easier for that Trump uh, President Trump to formulate that because even though he and Pelosi are on opposite sides politically, he sees her as a contemporary. They're of a similar age. She's, she's a wealthy white woman who's been in power for a long time throughout much of his career in the public eye. And he liked that positioning. He took it too far from a certain point of view with those go back to Africa tweets. And then the last week we've seen him spend trying to calibrate how much racism is the right amount of racism. (laughs) It was working for him, but then when his crowd did the send her back chance, he said he didn't like it, but then he saw that now he had sort of sold out his own supporters. So he went back to calling them patriots. And now with that tweet that you just read a minute ago, which is from this morning, I think what the president is, is sort of signaling is the way out of this is to paint the squad is racist to take the spotlight off himself as someone who was tweeting racist things. I don't know how this is going to play out over the course of this week, but clearly we're going into our second week of this.
0: Right. Which is, um, I'm sure the Republican leadership, they, they, which were, who are a bunch of cowards in my opinion, and I've said this repeatedly, but, right. they, but you know, because privately they uh, all kvetch over Trump and say they're like despondent over the things that he says and does because they know better, but they will never say it publicly. And then sometimes they come out with these little half-assed condemnations without taking it to, you know, well, he's not a racist, but it was racially insensitive or it was inappropriate or whatever nonsense so that they don't get the wrath of Trump. Uh, But it's... it's, this is the calculation, and I think that there he he because he crossed the line it it went too far now, I think it's smart politics to make the squad the face of the Democratic party because Nancy Pelosi has no longer become is no longer the boogeyman that she used to be it, when I was back Correct. you know when we were doing republican uh campaigns and things like that, it was all about Nancy Pelosi being the boogeyman, not anymore. It's these women. And, uh, you know, as a conservative, I, I find a lot of what they stand for to be objectionable and problematic. And no, I don't want the vision of America that they have. Uh, but they, the, he, by making it almost a color, a race issue, otherizing them is where it goes too far. Like you go after their socialist policies or their attacks on Israel, the anti-Semitic things that have been said, fair game. But don't go at don't the racial part of this is what makes this just so dangerous, in my opinion. It's it's um, it brings back a very ugly history.
1: It brings back an ugly history, and I think again the president's tweets two Sundays ago. One thing that sort of jarred people, even though we've all become sort of numb to the president saying things that are at a minimum gross uh, and if if not worse, the s asshole countries mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, him saying, uh, you know, things, you know, sexist things about women. You know, I said we, we've almost forgotten it at this point. But the Megyn Kelly comment where he said, you know, blood coming out of her wherever, yeah. which I don't think was I don't think was a mistake. I think he was talking about Uh, uh, you know, uh, her menstrual cycle, for lack of a more dignified way of putting it. Uh, There's such a litany of these comments that we forget. And I think that to some people initially, the go back tweets sounded like just more of the same. But as you said, when people of color hear these things, when you hear them, when I hear them, when other people of color or journalists of color hear them, we understand these as not just a a typical Trump vulgarity, but a taunt that immigrants, other people of color have heard as kids on the playground, um, as uh, as a way of essentially saying, "I don't care that these four Congresswomen are elected and took the same oath of office that I took. They're not worthy of the kind of Americanness, the kind of white Americanness that I ascribe to myself and my supporters, or right. the, the bulk of my supporters." And he's essentially saying that because of who they are not what they believe that they're kind of second-class citizens um, and the people as you said the people the Republicans on Capitol Hill and so forth that are trying to downplay this. I understand their political incentives, but their their arguments for that just simply don't hold water because the president didn't start out saying, um, you know, these four women and their wacky Green New Deal and their mm-hmm. wacky Medicare for All and their wacky Israel policy. I don't know. That's not what he said. He said. That's right. If you don't like it, you can lump it, go the f back to Africa. It's yeah. basically what he said, right. essence, and and yes. that's where we are.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and I, um, I last week was very uh, passionate, to say the least, uh, in my condemnation of this. You were. I just, it's just, it, 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 it I recoil at what he's making okay. You know, I mean, I'm not naive to the fact that there are still very uh, ugly racial sentiments in this country and a certain underbelly that has reemerged that he's given some agency to and it's uh, I'm like where how do you stop this? Or I mean, I I fear and i 've said this, and not to be melodramatic, but I, I fear a like violence in the streets with this kind of racial resentment. We already saw Tiki torches in Charlottesville, and a woman lost her life. Where does it end when he continues to double and triple down on make and otherizing these women saying that they hate America and that they are right. it's un-American to criticize the government or America? It's the complete opposite. But so many of these people are getting in, – it's so inflammatory. I worry about somebody picking up arms and trying to kill them.
1: Yeah, what? no, I, I – I... I think he's created a he's created an environment where some people will take it as license what? to do something extreme. I don't know that we're quite. I I I might hesitate. And you didn't say race war, but we're. I think we're we're not at the point where we necessarily have to worry about a race war. But we are in a situation where we're not just going to unravel all these feelings that have been bubbled up. Right. Uh, after the next election, there's going to be a lot more heavy lifting to do. To I don't want to say sound you know naive like oh let's lock arms and kumbaya but to get this sort of uh division back under control and to a point where the the country can you know sort of move forward together can i, I even though it's your podcast can i ask you a question of course
0: um, this is conversational uh, um, it's very conversational yeah. and honestly
1: speaking as as i mean i i know you've talked about this before but it always i always wonder when you have someone like you who is not just a rank and file uh republican of color but someone who worked on the hill worked on republican issues worked for republican uh elected officials um could you have ever imagined being here let's say 10 or 12 years ago no
0: no. Okay.
1: Yeah. No. no yeah. Absolutely
0: not. I, I often speak of during the 2016 campaign my uh-huh. experience in South Carolina during the primary, where I was in the room with Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, and uh-huh. Marco Rubio when they locked arms on stage when before Rubio had dropped uh, dropped out of the race, and thinking to myself, "This is the future of the Republican Party." And okay. After. The demise of Rubio and just the, you know... The, the way that Trump ran away with the nomination and, and eventually the election and the way that Republicans fell in line with him has been one of the most disheartening, dismaying, upsetting, disappointing uh, experiences of my 20 plus years of political um, work with the Republican Party. I, I struggle with staying in the party every day, watching what's going on. But I stay because I feel like if these people, if the crazies run all the same people out, who's going to be there to build this back, put this back together when it's over. Because this will end eventually. And we need two functioning parties in this country. It's the way our system works. And I, I refuse to let all of these people just ruin the party um, where, to the point where they go the way of the Whigs. It may uh, actually, it may end up that way, it may be irreparable, but I'm still holding on to hope that there are-
1: You're no not ready to give up myself. yet. Right.
0: That's right. Got There's it. Enough people Got that we
1: okay, Rebuild no. it. Yeah. That's really interesting. No, no, I I understand exactly what you're saying. Because the principles
0: um, aren't any different. You know, like the what makes the what made makes me a conservative and a Republican policy wise and the principles, they aren't any different. It's just that the people now who are in charge of this have lost their freaking minds and have become hypocrites and no longer <laughs> apply those principles. But the yeah. principles haven't changed. Mean,
1: I I would agree that the principles of conservatism haven't changed. Conservatism is conservatism. Although I wonder if uh, the the conservatism is being stripped out of the Republican Party by Trump because you see this rise of this, you know, as some people describe it, illiberal uh you know big government uh worship among uh Trump and his supporters where they basically are no longer saying you know free markets free speech it's more like we want our particular traditional values we want our particular uh social structure where we cater to the uh, what's the word I'm looking for, the sort of the priorities of a certain group of of white middle America, which would comprise a large part of Trump's base. Mm -hmm. And that is taking precedence over, you know, sort of the Tucker Carlson view of the world now. And that is taking precedence over the idea of smaller government, individual liberty Uh, You know capitalism etc
0: Right like that's the part Um, of it that's so shocking To me like I I, you know there's always Going to be that element where they they Play into racial Politics and kind of the lowest common denominator, but that didn't used to be the dominant part of the party. I mean, uh, watching where our, where we are with deficits, uh, the trade war and protectionism, like stalwart things going after our CIA and uh, FBI and uh, you know law enforcement this way, right. foreign policy, like certain things that were Republican, you know, stalwart issues go right out the window. Family values. I mean, the evangelicals and their hypocrisy with their support of Trump is one of the most despicable aspects of all of this. I, I am um, over the evangelical community right now. I don't even want to look yeah. at it. Um, that, like, I, all you know, of that it, is like, why, that part I would never have uh, anticipated.
1: So I have a theory about that, which is that it's kind of like we were just talking about with race and the idea that it is, yes, Some Republicans are taken aback by Trump's race baiting, but they're not, they don't have the courage to call it out. And some people are just sort of indifferent to it, but there are clearly Republican, or Trump voters anyway, or Republican voters who relish it, right? Like this Mm -hmm. idea that this guy is like politically incorrect, like I'm not the racist, you're the racist, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, and And there are people who 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 relish that. I also think when you talk about family values, there's a similar dynamic at play. Where, of course, no one's going to come out and say, "Yes, it's good that Trump has been married three times as as opposed to one time." Not that there's anything you know. I don't judge people who've been divorced, but I know there are some people who do. Um, I and uh, you know that it's obviously not good. That he's, uh, you know, made comments like grab women by the you know what Mm -hmm. or things like that. But at a sub level or at a subconscious level, I do think that there's a segment of his base, both men and women. Who sort of likes the idea that he's this unreconstructed '80s alpha male who takes what he wants, who who doesn't take no for an answer, sort of like a sort of like a malicious Roger Moore playing James Bond, <laughs> like you know, yeah. you know, you might say no, but you really, you know, but there's no telling me no. I don't want to get too, like, graphic with it, but yeah, you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, like, It's
0: interesting you bring that up, because I uh, my mom is very active on Facebook, and uh, okay, people who listen to me know I reference my mom and our conversations a lot, because we're okay. very close. And, As you should, and I've met your mom, yes. and, I, and she was lovely. I enjoyed meeting her. Everybody loves my mom. Um, so But my mom is, uh, I always say, and you wonder where I get it from. I mean, I'm, I am my mother's child through and through. And right. so she argues, she gets into these Facebook spats often, because she's like a, another super never-Trumper. and Right, of, and she someone, tells it like it is. She sure does. And uh, one of my uh, old high school classmates is on my page, and he's a big Trump supporter. And it, my mom was debating about this recent spat with the, the, the squad and, and the way Trump has behaved and the, the horrible things right. that he said. And he, this guy brought up the fact that people like Trump because he is the pure definition of masculinity. And yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. Right, and yep. that, and and how women like that, you know. And I was like, uh, we were horrified that this is this guy's view of what constitutes masculinity. Like, this is what makes a man. And when when I look at Trump, I see the complete opposite. I see an insecure little boy who's uh, you know a narcissist that's so insecure that he right. needs that. You know, right. That's why he needs the attention. Um, definitely not my definition of a man or my mother's. But to your point a lot of people apparently see him like that and i think what a dysfunctional twisted view of masculinity if that's if they're looking holding up donald trump as the alpha male that that's a fascinating study i think in behavioral science
1: yeah no i i really do think that's a piece again i'm not saying this is the majority of right. his supporters but, enough. but there's definitely an element mm-hmm. of his supporters even among people who consider themselves uh you know family values people or uh, evangelical christians and the like who see this as like this is what a man should be like right. no doesn't no doesn't mean no if if you're a real man like donald trump no always means yes and and Yep. And and it's uh, and and they may not articulate it that way. But I think there's there's a vibe of that going on here. No question.
0: Yeah, yeah. it's uh, yeah. I, I was saying the other day to my husband that I would love to be in a political psychology class or some kind of psychology class back in college again with a professor using Trump as the as the subject, because there will be I think there's plenty of material for years to come <laughs> to study on all of these things, from malignant narcissism to masculinity to why people follow him to cult to deprogramming. Like there are so many things that you could use Trump as an example for. And what a fascinating time from from an academic perspective studying this.
1: But yeah, meantime, I think that's right. To, I think we, that's we have right. We had to
0: live through it. Um, I just want to talk about speaking of living through it. You know, you work for The Washington Post, as I mentioned. Yeah. As, you know, as an assistant editor there. And The Post is on the receiving end of a lot of Trump's uh, fire when he goes after the media because the Post and the Times have been kicking ass when it comes to covering Trump and uncovering yeah. things going on, and he can't stand it. And part of his, part of his, um, uh, Tactic is to discredit the media from the very beginning because why the media is there to be the watchdog, hold people accountable, and if you start to discredit that source and get people not to believe it, then no one will ever hold you accountable, and that's where we are. It's very, um, very Nazi Germany like with the way they he they they did the s- similar things, calling the press the lugan Press, the lying press. I've mentioned that before, but at the yeah. post, um, he also has a bug up his ass about Jeff Bezos. Because Jeff Bezos Mm -hmm. owns the post. Can you please explain to people that Jeff Bezos has zero operational day to day control decision making of the post so that people understand that there is nothing going on between Jeff Bezos isn't telling you guys what to write, what not to write, what to cover? Because I think people don't often understand that dynamic.
1: Sure. No, I'm glad you brought this up. I I try not to say too much about it, obviously, because uh, since I work for the newspaper that Jeff Bezos owns, I'm not a, you know a neutral observer. But I but I I'm happy I'm happy to answer that question you know in this narrow way. Right. A couple of things. First of all, uh, Jeff Bezos is, as far as I know, at least recently, the wealthiest man in the world. He he is this the chairman of Amazon the uh, a, a huge company that affects so many of our lives. But the Washington Post is not part of Amazon. The Washington Post is part of Jeff Bezos' private holdings. We're not a subsidiary or uh, an affiliate of Amazon in any way. He owns us separately. That's number one. Mm-hmm. Number two is that, of course, like any business owner, He has input into the running of the business because he owns the business. But to your point, and I think this is a valuable point for uh, your listeners, uh, Tara. Right. Jeff Bezos doesn't tell us what stories to run. I've never been told that we can or can't run a story because Jeff Bezos did or didn't like it. And the other thing that's important to remember is that. We are led by Marty Barron, who is regarded as, if not the best newspaper editor in America, one of the two or three best newspaper editors in america to to put him in context uh and remind listeners uh if anybody has seen the movie spotlight uh -hmm. about the uh boston globe covering the uh catholic church scandal uh marty baron is a character in that movie which is based on true events played by liv schreiber And even though I don't interact with Marty on a day-to-day basis, he's my boss's boss's boss. Mm -hmm. Um, I have interacted with him a few times, chatted with him a few times. And Lib Schreiber's portrayal of him in that movie is not a bad portrayal of him at all. (laughs) This guy is a serious career news guy, and he's the one that sets the agenda for what's covered, how it should be covered, Um, and that trickles down to his senior editors and that trickles down to people like me who are junior editors. Um, and so, yeah, there's nothing wrong. The other point I wanted to get to, and I don't want to take too long on this is that, yes, there's nothing wrong with news organizations being criticized in a way that criticizes the specific facts of the coverage. If we make a mistake and that mistake comes out, we should correct it and we should acknowledge it. If the New York times makes a mistake and, and, and it's pointed out, they should correct it and they should acknowledge it um but by and large day in and day out there are incredible journalists people far more talented and far more uh with taking far more risks and, and 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 investment of their own lives uh than than I do sitting at a desk in a newsroom all day people are out there in the field in in America in Afghanistan in Syria uh bringing people the news and people really Uh, You know, 99% of the time are doing this job with integrity and trying to get it right. And, um, you know, some of the criticism, every now and then the criticism is warranted. Most of the time, I think, I, I just find myself wishing, look, you know, Can you be more specific? You know, oftentimes I'll get I I get it more when I'm on TV as as you are sometimes. And people will say, oh, that was all B.S. what you just said. And I'll just say, I'm happy to discuss it. But can you be specific?
0: Right. Right. Um, You know, like you said,
1: you said everything I said in a course of a five minute discussion was B.S. If you can tell me what specific thing I said that you thought was specifically factually wrong, I'm happy to discuss it. But if you just say everything out of your mouth was BS, it's harder for me to be like, you know, well, wh- what do you mean? Uh, the other thing that comes out is that people say they assume sometimes that uh, I have a strong liberal bias. Uh, When I've said things that are critical of president Trump and I have responded to people and said, I don't doubt I I don't dismiss that there have been a number of times, including right here on this podcast in our discussion today, Mm -hmm. where I've been critical of president Trump. But I don't think that anything I said in in our discussion today or in general had a liberal bias. It was simply my, uh, you know, critical analysis of things that the administration is or isn't doing. Um, I do think that's yes.
0: off, that's often just a cop out you know it's a, it's like an no of course it is but i, I think that's part they, of the problem yeah yeah hugely yeah. and and fox news has yeah. been the, the biggest purveyor of that and there were that there was legitimate and still is concern over whether certain news organizations present things from a certain point of view. I think that there's always been valid criticism of that. Um, but not all, it's not always just because it's critical or holding people to account or calling Trump out when he lies or 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 pointing out things that are just not factual. That's not a liberal bias. That's being honest. No, it's not a liberal bias. Right. That's not a liberal bias.
1: You know. and, and again, that goes back to my point where, where the way I try and engage with readers and listeners is, look, you know, again, yes, studies have been done. If you major news gathering organizations, yes, there have been studies that have shown that there are more people that lean left of center in some of the organizations and that oftentimes – uh, you know there are individual stories where you know people on the right of center of the spectrum feel aggrieved by them but i i continue to say to people if if a story comes out and you say there's there was something presented that story as a fact and it was not a fact that's absolutely worth pointing out but if it's just that you didn't like what the sort of gist of the story was well, you might want to think about why the gist of that story was the gist of that story. Right. Um, and, and, and that, you know, you you as the news consumer, not you, but like, yeah. but, you know, it's news like- consumers have to use their powers of critical reasoning, too. That's part of being in a free country. You read a story and you evaluate it for what it is. Maybe you think some of it is right. Maybe you think some of it is wrong. But unless something in there is factually inaccurate, which does happen sometimes, you have to sort of take your ownership as a reader or a listener or a citizen and say, okay, okay, I take this information on what it is and I move on.
0: Yeah, that's it. Unfortunately, I think that the aspect of critical thinking on the part of the consumer is being... Uh, wiped away because uh, people just, they don't want to critically think anymore and Trump knows that, which is why he repeats things over and over again, why he repeats lies over and over again, and and people are just eating it up. Our mutual friend Tom Nichols, who's a friend of the program, he wrote a book called The Death of Expertise, which is fabulous, people should read it, because it speaks to why people react this way and what happens when people dismiss actual facts and people who are experts in certain areas, but would rather listen to the demagoguery of someone like Trump. It's, It's 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 a fascinating dynamic and trump's been on a tear again you know he's going after the mainstream media because the washington post put out a story over the weekend basically right. a tiktok over how the the whole sender back send them back the, uh, events unfolded and he wasn't happy about it and usually when he does that 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 means the story's accurate
1: <laughs> and and yeah, I mean, yeah no I didn't work on that story, but I can say for certain that the people worked on that story are people with high integrity, who know what they're doing, and that's why they say at the outset of that story, we talked to, I think they said 26 26 different people, because what they're trying to say to you is, look, because we don't have everybody on the record, some people are speaking on background or they've been granted anonymity, we are going to be transparent about the fact that, look, we're reporting this based on conversations with 26 people, and you, the reader, can decide how much stock or value to put in this, but this it's it, it, it's not as the president wants to characterize it fake news it's news, and it's information for you, the reader. To decide what you want to do with that information
0: and it's yeah. not made up okay these are not no made up sources and according right to the that's not how we the, work the mainstream right. media has quote gone bonkers and no longer cares what's right or wrong I, I mean it's um it's amazing the projection you know everything he does he he, he blames other people and, and accuses them
1: yes of it's, Proje- it's projection is a part of this un, No question.
0: unbelievable um I, before we we wrap it up because uh, you've been really sure. generous with your time um uh, two more things i want to talk just a little bit about muller kind of a pre view of that since that's coming up this week, and it would be remiss of me not to bring it up. But uh, just how does it feel, you know, as a journalist um, in the newsroom every day? Whenever the president comes out and makes these comments about enemy of the people, what's the what's the vibe? What is what's the sense amongst your colleagues? Are they numb to so, it, now, or does it or does does it still sting? I think it varies from
1: uh, from person to person. Let me speak for myself and say this, um, with two major caveats. I uh, it doesn't bother me that much, and I think part of that is because I feel like you know I came of age as a journalist, even even though I'm a little older than some of my colleagues. I started my journalism career in the internet era and in the Twitter era, and part and parcel of that has been all this verbal jousting. Some of it being valuable and some of it being a complete waste of time. And so and and I have spent a lot of time around people uh, covering them who see the mainstream media as hostile to them and talking to them face to face. So when this all sort of came to a head with Trump, I feel like it was something that. I was accustomed to in a way that maybe people who started their journalism career at a time when broadcast news and when newspapers were king maybe were not ready for it and I mostly it rolls off my back one major caveat is that I think that's easier to say as a man because uh what I do know is that for whatever reason i guess sexism people feel more entitled to take shots at women journalists and say even more threatening or nasty or sexualized things to, uh, to women journalists, let's say on Twitter or in other social media, that they wouldn't necessarily say to a man. So I have that luxury, whereas women journalists, I think, have to be even more acutely aware of their own security. Um, but that being said, I think most journalists in the mainstream media uh, are committed to what they're doing to the point where they understand that yes it can be uncomfortable at times but uh but people are prepared to you know see their job and see their big picture and try not to uh take the bait i'm not saying that there's nothing you can say to me that won't get under my skin but 99 percent of what is said by the president or is said to me by people on social media does not really get under my skin, uh, but that, but I'm sure someone can come up with something. Yeah, oh, yeah I, I'm sad. I'm sad to say. <laughs> and I'm sad i and to I'm say. Sad, yeah.
0: And I wouldn't be surprised if that happens between now and uh, November 2020, while well, as long as probably still in office. There's no limit to it seems to his debasement of the of the political discourse, uh, but that's interesting. Indeed. I mean, I I I think it's an interesting. Um, Observation that from your perspective, that you think that women get it worse? Um, I, I, I do. Under, I mean, maybe, yeah, possibly. I think Trump is an equal opportunity um, insulter. And, you know, he goes after right. Jim Acosta and others, uh, pretty tough as, as well when he's upset with their coverage, but there is, it does feel like there's a certain yeah. extra bit of a, you know, a jab when it comes to women. Cause he, I think he thinks women are inferior and if they're not good, looking, yeah. if they're not good looking enough, then, right. then he really goes after them and calls them dogs and everything else. And, and exactly. don't necessarily exactly. get that. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, Mueller, we got to talk about this for a couple minutes. Yeah, Mueller. You know, it's a little tough to predict what's going to happen. Um, you right. know, That's it. The the testimony was moved from last week to this Wednesday, July twenty fourth. Um, What are what do you see as the Democrats strategy going into this? Because I worry that they're not going to use this time properly. But I know that there's been a lot of jockeying up there and a lot of, you know, uh, practicing of how they're going to approach Mueller. What are you hearing about what the Democratic strategy is going into into the hearing with Mueller?
1: So I don't think I have any reporting that's you know better than anything that's already out there. But I do think that it, at a minimum, it was a mistake for them to move the hearing uh, on the basis of, as has been widely reported, that they thought they needed more time or there was still some wrangling over who was going to get to ask what questions when. I think that's overthinking it. If you're the Democrats, you want a concentrated amount of time where you get uh, uh, special counsel Mueller to sort of put some color to some of the facts that were in his report, which was very detailed, very thorough, but ultimately kind of a dry read, which is why so many people didn't read it. Um, and, and I think that's the best you can hope for. You know, one of the things that I, that, that I have said or tried to say is that it's not Congress's job. It's not the house Democrats job to, uh, at this stage anyway to magically pull the haze away from people's eyes if that's if they think there's a haze over people's eyes about what the president uh, and his team did or didn't do during 2016, and it's and, and I think it's they really aren't doing too much of seeing their job as trying to like work a miracle. Their job as people who've taken an oath to the Constitution is to do their best to present facts in a way that the American people can understand them, and then make a decision about whether or not they think what has been uncovered and presented merits an impeachment inquiry. Um, If ultimately an impeachment uh, goes forward and fails, then then an impeachment inquiry goes forward and fails. If ultimately they think that they've done everything they can do to get the information out there and that an impeachment inquiry isn't warranted, then so be it. But like if you're in a situation where half the country sees things fundamentally one way and half the country sees things another way, um, they've just got to do their job to put it out there for the people and and let people decide that there's not a miracle to be worked from the democratic point of view and it's like if we can just ask special counsel Mueller this one question and the world of donald trump will just crumble like a stack of jenga blocks i i just think that's a that's unrealistic and b that is actually putting too much on themselves. If half the country doesn't want the Tower of Jenga to come crumbling down, then it's not gonna come crumbling down. Uh, And and, and people have to sort of get their hands around it. It, it, In the same way that... um uh, in the same way that uh, you know you go into 2020 as a Democrat, and again I'm not I'm not taking a side here, just trying to look at it from the Democrats' point of view. You go into 2020 and you say, "Look, we have 20 candidates. We don't have anybody who's a generational talent like Barack Obama. So you just say, let's pick the best of the rest." and move forward with the best campaign and there's a certain degree to which they have to fight it out and have to debate on issues and strategy and personalities but there's another thing where it's like look uh you've got to pick your best candidate and move forward into uh, a political battle in 2020 you might win and you might lose and voters might turn out and voters might shrug their shoulders and you have to sort of be prepared for that because if you worry I don't know what to do because voters might shrug your shoulders. You eventually wound up having like a paralysis analysis, and 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 then. As the opposition party, you don't function properly. No one knows what's going to happen yeah. in 2020. They just have to move forward.
0: Absolutely, just have to and move I, forward. And I think yeah. it is important that the Democrats pursue this testimony with Mueller, and 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 it is important for the American people to hear from him what he put in that report. Because you're right, it was very lawyerly. I mean, it was a fascinating read if you if you were dedicated to taking the time to read the 448 pages, which most right. people weren't, you know, were not. But it's pretty clear that the President of the United States. States engaged in misconduct that any most people who weren't president would have been indicted for. And that's why federal prosecutors or former ones came out and wrote that letter and you know, signed on to a, th- a thousand of them signed on and said, yeah, in our opinion, it meets the, the elements of obstruction of justice and other things, and he would have been uh, indicted if it, if it hadn't been for this Office of Legal Counsel memo from the Department of Justice saying the president can't be indicted. Those are important things. I think the American people should know whether, as Nixon said, their president is a crook, and the only way to do that yeah. in our system is through hearings and opening up an impeachment inquiry, which they should do, um, but I think the Democrats have pussyfooted around for so many months now with this that it's out of the American um, psyche right now. Nobody cares about the Mueller report anymore. It right. came out in April. This is July heading into August, and then they're going to head into August recess at the end of the week where they're gone for a month. No, I, I just think the right. timing of this, they've wasted so much time. They've lost a lot of opportunity. Yeah, I I. I, I look, I, I I'm not sure I know
1: what ultimately is the best strategy, but I would certainly agree with you that they have wasted a lot of time on things that are sort of outside of their control, trying to play by Robert's rules of order or, you know, Marquis of of Queensbury rules (laughs) and, and where and and. Uh, The administration, the White House, the attorney general are playing real, real brass knuckles hardball and uh, like all my mixed metaphors there. And uh, and uh, and it's it's has been sort of a mismatch. Um, Right. You just need a few questions from the point of view of the Democrats. If you think wrongdoing has been done, you need a few questions to the special counsel. You know, Okay, special counsel Mueller. Donald Trump Jr. Uh, had this 2016 Trump Tower meeting. You ultimately found that it didn't rise to the level of a campaign finance violation. You found that it didn't rise to the level of conspiracy to defraud the United States. Please explain why. Right. Question one. Uh, you know, you, you, you. You know, we know that Don McGahn was, based on his own testimony, was told or strongly encouraged to get rid of you as special counsel. Uh, but uh, you didn't find obstruction of justice. Why not? Um, right, you know, did I, you
0: find obstruction of justice, but felt as yeah though you couldn't charge it because of the Office of Legal Counsel memorandum? That's right. what they and think. That get- every single instance of those ten where it's pretty clear, they need to ask Mueller. Uh, here in your report, you have you lay out the three elements that must be met, and it, it appears as though they were in fact met. Why did you? Was it because of the OLC memo that you did not? recommend indictment that i mean they need to, yeah because it's got to be clear because it hasn't been and i just think Mueller has been a reluctant witness not because he's right. um uh, picking sides or he just he doesn't want to pick sides. he doesn't want it to be political which is why he's a reluctant witness but at this point right. i just feel that it's his it's his obligation to come and explain that oh yeah yeah the american people he's got to do it yeah i will we're th- gonna see it everybody's got everybody's got a role to play here. Congress has
1: to ask the right questions. The Democrats in the house have to ask the right questions. Republicans in both houses have to ask themselves, uh, are they going to be partisan, or are they going to look at this objectively? Oh, well, we already um, answered that one. Right. <laughs> v- voters, have to, voters have to ask themselves if they're going to do their job as citizens, which is to be informed and take this stuff seriously. And even um, Special Counsel Mueller, who I, I don't want to you know, malign him anyway, he's a war hero. He mm-hmm. served as the FBI director, as a prosecutor. He's the last Boy Scout. He's a quintessential american hero there's no question about that but even with that stellar resume and even recognizing that he made a sacrifice to come back into the public square and take on this investigation which by all accounts he did uh with professionalism he does have a little obligation on on himself too to say look if i don't give at least a few enlightening answers again i don't mean making stuff up or spinning it but if i don't enlighten people a little bit on what we found in our report what was the point in me doing the report? Exactly. Uh, at some point. Yeah, you know, and so everybody's got a part to play. Uh, you know, we as journalists do, we as commentators do, but right down to the citizens. Citizens, I understand that someone who has to take their kids to soccer practice and work two jobs probably can't take the time to read the entire report, but. Maybe, as a citizen, it's your sort of obligation to read a couple of news articles that summarize the report and familiarize yourself with that, so that when you vote next year, whether you vote for Trump or whether you vote for the Democrat or whether you vote for someone else, you, you, you are doing it with a basis of information. And I think uh, if people understand that everybody has a part to play, then uh, I don't want to be like, "Oh, then it'll all work out, the end, Rainbow <laughs> you know, and lock arms. Comemba ya. Yeah. But but that is how the system is supposed to
0: work. That's how yeah. it's supposed to work. Well, I guess right. we, we we shall see, which seems to be the, <laughs> we, 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 the, indeed. The we mantra. shall see. <laughs> we right, shall see, right, my right. friend. David Swardlick from the Washington Post. Thank you so much, my friend, for uh, spending some time with me, chatting. A great conversation. And Thanks for uh, having me. This was fun. Thank you. We'll, we'll we'll do it again because I'm sure there'll be an occasion for us to chat again. Oh, yeah. There's just never a dull moment with this freaking president and this administration. Administration, and we're still still a year and a half away from the election. David like Okay, stand, and and, stay and and and. Oh. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Sarah. Okay. Bye. Bye. Another big thank you to David look for joining me on Honestly Speaking this week. Next week, we'll I'll do a preview of the upcoming. Democratic debate that CNN is hosting, the debates out in Detroit, two nights, two big nights, you know who I'll be watching. I will have my eye on the vice president and we'll see what, how he handles being next to Kamala Harris again. And I'll be curious to see how Mayor Pete does on the first night with uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders going at it. Everybody else needs to go away because they don't stand a chance. So, but hopefully after this next debate, it'll whittle it down a little bit and they can finally um, concentrate on, on who that nominee is going to be. Of course, I'm hoping it's Joe Biden. Anyway, so that'll be next week. I'll definitely do a breakdown of, of the upcoming debates and whatever else happens in, in the week from now to then. A week is an eternity in politics, especially with this administration. So thank you again for listening and be sure to follow me on social media. At Tara Setmayer on Twitter, honestly underscore Tara on Twitter, and on Instagram, if you want to see a little bit of the other side, not quite as political, a little more of the fun side of things, you can follow me on Instagram at the Tara Setmayer. I posted some really cool um, video of the Apollo 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon landing. There was really cool celebrations going on here in DC, including this projection and video on the Mall recreating from the actual archival footage, the moon landing in 1969. It was so neat. I also po- uh, posted it uh, some of the video from that on, on Twitter as well. Just really cool. One of, the, one of the many neat benefits of living in the DC area. They, they really do things like that wonderfully. So big shout out to NASA and the Smithsonian and uh, uh, for putting on an amazing celebration. And oh, did anybody see Buzz Aldrin? I have, to, I have to talk about this before I go. Buzz Aldrin, who was one of the first to walk on the moon. First it was Neil Armstrong, then Buzz Aldrin. And you know, we got these idiots out here who think the moon landing was faked and it was filmed in a Hollywood studio. It wasn't. It was real. Anyway, and one of these guys was following Buzz Aldrin around last week at a hotel and harassing him and, and try to get him to swear in a Bible that that he walked on the moon and then he called him um, a liar and a thief. He started to say thief and Buzz Aldrin cold-clocked this dude with a, <laughs> with a right hook. Buzz Aldrin's like 80-something years old. And I have to say, good for him. I mean, I don't like to advocate violence, but sometimes somebody deserves to get a pop in the mouth and that guy sure enough did. Buzz Aldrin is a national hero, okay? And you're gonna harass him and, and say that he's a liar and a thief and a coward, I think he said too yeah so anyway good for you buzz that'll teach them <laughs> anyway um that's it be sure to uh tune in for next week's episode and i'll see you then <music>